How about now? Okay. All right, so I went to Mariners game last night. <laughs> Long story short, that's where we're at. Um, I went with the McCarthy's. Uh, McCarthy's, McCafferty's. We were just praying for the McCarthy's. Went with the McCafferty's. It was a fun time. We enjoyed each other's company. It was great. Renee got to go to her first Mariners game, so I was happy to be a part of that. Um, I am probably the most intense Mariners fan that I know, which is a terrible misfortune if you follow baseball <laughs> because the Mariners haven't made the playoffs since 2001, which is the longest drought in professional baseball. Um, before I start wallowing in my own self-pity because of that fact, um, let me just get to the point. Last night, we were in the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, down by one run. It was a 1-0 ball game. The tying run was up to bat, and it was our best hitter, Mitch Haniger. And I could just see it in my mind. I don't know if you guys watch baseball, but I can just watch the pitch come in from the closer. The Astros think they've got us beat. And then Mitch Haniger ties the game with one swing. And a tenth of a second, a single moment, ball's gone, the game's tied. And I'm, like, looking forward to this. I think something distinct about baseball fans is that we have, like, an adrenaline anxiety complex that needs to be constantly fulfilled because other sports are slow to build up and they kind of develop right in front of you. But baseball has a bunch of individual moments that are question marks that something spectacular could happen. And so when you're at the very end of the game, something spectacular had better happen now, right? Otherwise, we're all going home, and that's it. Um, so this is why I love baseball. We're in the bottom of the ninth. There's nobody out. Our best hitter's up to bat. We're down by one run, and what's going to happen next, right? So they're, pump, they're, they're playing the pump-up music in the stadium, and there's all, you know, almost 9,000 fans there, so it's not very many. Um, but I'm getting excited. Like I said, I'm an intense fan, so I'm standing up. I'm getting, I'm getting excited to go, and I got my hands in the air. I'm cheering. I'm clapping. You know, we're obeying all of the local, you know, rules for us to do this at a Mariners game with COVID going on and everything, and a, a man approaches me from behind, and I'm a little startled by his presence, and it's an usher, and I will remember his face, and his name as long as I live, because I've never had this happen before to me at a baseball game. This usher says to me, sir, you need to stand down. You need to sit down. And I'm blown away, right? Excuse me? That's Mitch Haniger. Up to bet. <laughs> We're in the bottom of the night. We're down by one run. Like, and, and so as a baseball fan, I'm just taking, I'm like, this is, this is what we came for. This is what we paid for. This is what we want. This is the point of the game, the contest. The battle between the Astros and the Mariners culminates right now. And you're going to tell me to sit down? There was no prior expression, and I've never seen this as a baseball fan before in my entire life. So for those of you who don't like baseball, if you're like, well, maybe you always sit down, you don't. You stand up when it's exciting, and you sit down most of the rest of the game. You sit down, it's a three-hour game. So you don't stand up the entire time. You probably stand up for ten minutes, maybe. And so being told to sit down at the culmination of the game, when the conflict between the Mariners and the Astros is its highest peak of anxiety and suspense, I almost lost my mind. I think I need to repent a little bit of that because I told the usher he's out of his mind. I said, you are out of your mind. I paid to come here to see this, and this is what I'm here for. So in that, with that being said, that's what I said to him. I need to repent of that. I need to learn to embrace the authority that God puts in my life a little bit better. But also, I feel like, as a fan, that's what I'm there for. And sometimes, we're going to segue here. 
sometimes spiritually we get ourselves into position where there is a deciding point. We're in a culmination of a war. And we hear this voice come up from behind us. And this voice says, don't worry. This isn't the point of action. You can wait. Don't get excited yet. This isn't for you. And if you hear anything about baseball, forget it. Remember this. That we are at war. And today we're going to look at Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And as you're turning there, I want you to get this. The Satan's primary tactic in fighting this battle with the Western church is to convince us that there's no war to be fought. The way that Satan attacks us in the Western church is through comfort, complacency, and ultimately, we're asleep when the game's going on. We're sitting down when we should be cheering. And this is the scheme of the devil. He wants us to be asleep during the war. So Revelation chapter 12 serves as an alarm to wake us up. Let's read starting in verse 7. If you're there with me, Revelation 12, 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And this is where we find ourselves. We pick up in the middle of verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to come before you this morning and seek out what you have given us in your holy word. Lord, we know that studying your word magnifies who you are to us. We get a better glimpse of your character and your attributes. And Lord, this morning, we're looking at what you say to us about the war that we're in. As we continue to study what peace, true peace from you really means this morning, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate this text in our lives and help us not to only be hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord, I pray specifically for myself as your messenger this morning that I would be hidden so far behind the shadow of the cross that all the people here would see is you. Lord, I pray that you would just 
cover over the rough parts of my speech, my blemishes. Lord, even things that I might say that are inaccurate. Lord, that you would be proclaimed and glorified in all of your majesty, all of your greatness, and everything that you are. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. As I said before, Romans chapter 12 is an alarm. It's an alarm clock waking up the sleeping church. Use the analogy that the leader of the Iranian house church movement uses. He says it's like the church in the West is under some satanic lullaby. That they're asleep. I think he recognizes our power and our potential and our wealth. And he sees how little they have and how they're under persecution. And he compares the two. I think as humans we do that. And I think that that comparison in and of itself is fair. I think it's fair. So this morning we're looking at Romans 12 to stir us up. To make us aware of Satan's plan for our lives. Because I'm afraid... We are asleep in some way. So, by the grace of God, I want to open this passage and expose how we're getting our spiritual teeth kicked in. And I know that's not church language, but I need it to be this morning. I need it to be. I want to speak plainly. Many of us spiritually are getting beat up real bad. And if you're wondering why, if you're wondering why you're already compromised, we're going to look at his schemes today. I mean, we have such a faithful God who has a voice from heaven recorded by John here to tell us exactly how the Satan goes about doing what he's doing. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. As we're looking at spiritual things, I want to say a quick disclaimer before we get started. We're talking about Satan and evil And the disclaimer is, I'm not giving you a reason to run around saying the devil made me do it. I'm not. Um, Not all evil and sin is from Satan and demons. Some is. I'm, I'm not covering the whole gamut of evil this morning. I'm not. And I don't mean to say that all evil is from Satan, because it's not. But I think the overall emphasis of the New Testament writings are taken into account. We have very little space given to discussing what demonic activity looks like when it meddles in the life of believers or methods to resist or oppose such activities. So ultimately, ultimately, since when the Bible describes different sins, I think it is taking into account it might be you, it might be the world, it might be Satan. And this morning we're going to look exactly how Satan is acting in our lives. So how do we have triumph over the works of the devil through the gospel? through God's working in our lives through the gospel. And so this morning when we're looking at this, I don't want you to go, oh, all of my sin in my life is Satan. I'm going to blame him. No, that's not true. But he is at work and he does want to see us fail. So how is the Western church asleep this morning? That's what we're going to dive into. Um, a real quick aside about the book of Revelation. We can dive in the middle of the book of Revelation um, because even though it is a series of visions, these visions are not linear in chronology. I believe that they are individual visions that are windows into specific things that are happening. This one particularly here in Revelation 12 is a window into church history and the entire narrative from the beginning to the end. 
And we're firmly within this in the beginning and the end because we are still within time. We are not in eternity future. We are in the present. And so as we find ourselves here, we can apply Revelation 12 to our lives. Let's, let's look real quick as I sum up Revelation 12. Here's Satan's plans and his failures. Okay, Satan's plans in Revelation 12. I don't know if you're familiar with this chapter, but here John is opening up his vision. First, he gets a vision of the sign of the church, Israel, and Mary combined into one. And this woman is pregnant and about to give birth. And what does Satan want to do? The, the red dragon here described wants to devour the child. Okay, so that's his first scheme. I'm going to eat the child. The child is Jesus, is the one who rules from heaven with an iron scepter later in the chapter. So I'm going to eat the child. First, first idea, right? How does that go? Well, this child is whisked away to heaven. So he fails there. But he's not done. No, he's resourceful. He takes his demons, gathers them up, and goes to heaven to challenge him there. And it says, as I began reading, Michael the archangel, his ancient enemy who opposes Satan personally, very frequently in scripture, kicks him out of heaven. He bounces him out of heaven. He says, you don't have a place here, and he kicks him out, casts him down back to earth. Well, defeated but not dismayed yet, Jesus, the, de- the Satan, the red dragon, says, if I can't get Mary, I'm going to go get, I mean, if I can't get Jesus, I'm going to go get Mary again. So he chases Mary down, and she's delivered. God is very clear that she is delivered by the earth and by water, and these are poetic images, images that convey that the earth covers her up because it's not her time to be exposed to Satan yet. So the church is not devoured. But there's a fourth thing that he does. He can't get to the woman. So what does he do? Verse 17. Let's look there really quick. It's at the end of the chapter. Then the dragon, who became furious with the woman, so he can't get her, he's furious, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. I believe this is where we find ourselves, on those who keep the commandments of God. Does that define who we are? Yes. And hold the testimony of Jesus. Yes. That's us. So knowing that that's us, He's making war. And this is his third object of war, right? Mary first. I mean, the child first, Jesus first, Mary second, the church in Israel. And now third is us today. Third is us today. And this is where we find ourselves in this passage. So he's failed multiple times in his successful, in his attempts to successfully defeat God. And here, frustrated and desperate in our day and age, he attacks. This is where we are today. We know that Satan is ultimately defeated, but not yet. We are in the in-between like we talked about last week. And here from the voice in heaven, we have high-value intel about how this cornered red dragon is going about attacking us. So, the devil's schemes, we'll talk about them in a second, but I first want to say that this apocalyptic prophecy is not just saying the devil is symbolic for evil. I want you to know this morning, the devil is real. This slide should say the devil's piece. Is that? No. I don't know if this is the right one, but maybe I just wrote it wrong. Um, the devil, Satan is real. Western Christianity is primarily influenced by naturalism. And naturalism is the belief, a naturalistic worldview, that only admits reality of what can be seen or touched or heard. What do your senses tell you? This denies intrinsically that demons or supernatural things exist today. 
and maintains the belief that reality reflects an obs- that the biblical reality reflects an obsolete worldview by the Bible and other ancient cultures. So if you don't think that this is what the Western church believes, let's look at what the Barner, Barner Research Study says. It says that 4 out of 10 Christians, so 40% of Christians surveyed, strongly agreed with this statement. Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. Satan is just symbol. An additional 2 out of 10 Christians, so... 20 more percent said they agree somewhat with that perspective. So that's already over half of Western Christianity right there. A minority of Christians, on the other hand, indicated they believe Satan is real, and that was 26%. And then the rest of the people, about one-tenth disagreed with that statement, and about another tenth weren't sure what they believed. So me preaching this morning that Satan is real, alive, and a cornered dragon coming to get you is only believed by about a quarter of Christianity today. So this message, I might be preaching to the choir. You may have never heard that before. You're like, I believe he is real. I was raised that way, right? Well, I can't assume that. I can't assume that you've come to this message today believing that. So let's first look at Isaiah, the prophet, his words really quickly here in 14, 12 through 14. Isaiah says that Satan's a demon, a fallen angel. Angels are created beings just like you and me. They have moral judgment and high intelligence, but not physical bodies. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 says this, speaking of, presumably of Satan, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This is Satan's ambition. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And this is the lie that he told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan is frustrated and desperate in this attempt in our day. Let's talk a little bit more about who he is. He is the originator of sin and the instigator of sin in humanity. Somewhere between when God created everything and it was perfect in eternity, somewhere between eternity past where God was present and perfect in the Trinity, and when he created everything in Genesis 1, between then and Genesis 3, which is the fall of man where man first, mankind first sinned, Satan and the angels have been cast out of heaven. So the angels sinned before man did, preceded our fall. The temptation of Eve in Genesis 3 shows this. She is tempted by, we believe, Satan himself in the garden. 
and he is the originator of temptation in mankind. Furthermore, John 8:44 says, "The devil was a murderer from the beginning, from the beginning of time, from the beginning of his purpose on earth, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Satan's power on earth is temporary. I need you to know this as well. This is his character. His power on earth is given to him, but it is intrinsically borrowed. It is borrowed from God. God has authority over all things, and God will take it back. Eventually, he is given reign over the earth to Satan so that Satan may work his pleasure, even though we know that God will reign in the end. We also see Satan work differently in different stages of humanity. But what we're looking at in this passage, like I made clear before, is intrinsically for you here today. The other thing that we know, not only is Satan's power temporary, but it is limited. It is limited. Satan must seek permission from God himself before he tempts us. This is established in the narrative of Scripture. The story of Job makes it clear that Satan can only do what God gave him permission to do and nothing more. Job 1.12 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Satan's asking for permission to tempt Job, and he says, The Lord said to Satan, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So everything around him at this time, yes, but not the man himself. This is important to know that Satan is not all-powerful. He's only allowed to do what God has given him authority, borrowed authority, borrowed time, granted to do for now. So we have seen the nature of Satan's power, and we know that he is real. He's not just an embodiment of evil. So what does he do? What does Satan do? What is the scheme? This passage has two signs and a scheme, and today we're getting into the scheme of Satan. This will explain who he is so we know what he does. This is verses 9 through 11. Satan is three things. He is a deceiver, he is an accuser, and he is a killer. How does he plan to deceive, accuse, and kill us? He has many tactics in order to do this, and they are not limited to what you think or what you've seen. He is constantly changing his tactics. He wants to, first of all, exchange the truth of God for a lie, which is primarily that lie that he told us in the beginning, which is, you can be like the Most High. You can be like the Most High. He wants to prove God a liar. And so in verse 9, we see that he deceives. Let's focus first on the deception of Satan. Satan uses a false peace in order to focus his efforts. See, Satan's resources, like I said before, is not infinite. He is finite. So, since he has a limited amount of energy, instead of using his power to make war that is spiritual in nature, that is death in nature, he would rather use the concept of soft war. How many of you are familiar with this? Have you seen propaganda videos? You know what those are from World War II, right? That's what conjures up in my mind. 
anti-war songs is an example of this, or war songs. Um, there's also corporate marketing campaigns for or against things. Um, there's even social media posts. You name it, we see it today. Uh, we need to see these things sometimes as influenced by Satan. Primarily, he's trying to convince us that there's no war or to get you to delay in preparing for war. If he can do that, why would you take up arms against him? He won't be ready. Primarily, Satan is working right now in his deceit here in verse 7 to devalue, edit, or redefine the words of Scripture today. If he can get you to devalue, edit, or redefine the words of Scripture, he can neuter and dehorn the power of God. He'll try to rob God's word of its power and his glory. Today he says things like, in deception to us, God's word isn't eternally valid. It was for old times, but not for today. And we see this particularly right now in deconstruction and decolonization of faith. Current post-Christian culture wants the kingdom of Jesus without the king. They want morality without spiritual change. Examples of this are saying things like, Jesus' sexual ethic has no place in today's culture. Or, God didn't create us with specific genders. Or, another popular one is, a good God wouldn't send people to hell. These are three examples of things that I have seen on Instagram this last week. On Instagram... (laughs) This last week. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Instagram. I'm on the gram pretty heavily, and I notice these things. There are teachers out there that are discipling your kids and our teens through Instagram, teaching us lies of the devil. This has happened. See, this isn't a new tactic, though. This tactic is new, but the deceit is not. The lies are old. Many of our founding fathers in Western Christianity were deists. They did not believe God was a personal creator or knowable. Not sure if that sounds familiar from what I was just talking about, but let me read you an excerpt from what the History Channel says. Okay? The ex-president bent over the book, using a razor and scissors to carefully cut out small squares of text. Soon the book's words would live on their own book, hand-bound in red leather and ready to be read in private moments of contemplation. Each cut had a purpose, and each word was carefully considered. As he worked, Thomas Jefferson pasted his selections, each a variety of ancient and modern languages that reflected his vast learning, into a book of neat columns. Thomas Jefferson was known as an inventor and tinkerer, but this time he was tinkering with something held sacred by hundreds of millions of people, the Bible. Using his clippings, the aging third president created a New Testament of his own, one most Christians could hardly recognize. The Bible was focused 
only on Jesus, but none of his mystical works. This Bible didn't include major scenes in the resurrection or the ascension to heaven or miracles like turning water into wine or walking on water. Instead, Jefferson's Bible focused on Jesus as a man of morals, a teacher whose truths were expressed without the help of miracles or the supernatural powers of God. Few don't think that Western church is influenced by the Enlightenment. Few don't think that the Western church pushes out miracles as nonsense. I don't think you have a proper view of our history. And we have to know where we've been to know where we're going. So anytime we devalue, edit, or redefine, just like Thomas Jefferson did, the words of Scripture, we are changing who God says He is. We are making God a liar. Just like right here in verse 9, the great dragon is called the deceiver of the whole world. And his deception? God's not who He says He is. See, any time we change who God says He is, we're saying... What he says isn't enough. Ultimately, man wants to change who God says he is to make him more palatable. Like I said, dehorn him, to neuter him. And anytime we do that, we change God into a version of ourselves. He becomes an idol, and he becomes a lot like fallen man. A lot like sinful man. The original sin is the reverse of that. I mean, is, is this. God made us to be perfect in community with him, and we want to bring God down to our level, not go to his. This is what this strives to do. It devalues, edits, and redefines who God says he is. And this is believing the oldest lie of Satan. You will be like the most high. We can make the most high like ourselves. So this is the first way Satan wars against us. He gives us a false sense of peace. He deceives us into thinking there isn't a war to fight. But the war isn't serious. The second thing, second weapon of Satan, is his primary weapon, I believe. It is accusation. Satan is an accuser. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice, heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. This is particularly interesting, seeing that Satan, I believe, regularly goes to heaven to make accusations of us before God. Regularly does this. The accuser of the brethren is something that he employs frequently. Have you guys ever felt this accusation? I know I was talking to a coworker about coming to Easter Sunday. And he said, if I come in to the doors of church, I'm pretty sure I'm going to immediately combust in flames. I'm too big of a sinner, essentially is what he's saying. I'm too big of a sinner to enter the doors of the church, which is a lie that he's been accused of. It's a lie lie saying that my sin is too much for God to forgive. I don't know about you, but that is, to me, doubting Jesus. Doubting Jesus' work on the cross and his work to redeem. Don't ever estimate Jesus. Don't believe that accusation. Another accusation we hear as, as Christians is, the devil saying to us, you don't know how to read your Bible. You're not 
disciplined enough to read your Bible through the entire year, maybe. This is a false accusation. It's garbage. You've believed your lie. If you believe this, you've believed a lie. Let me tell you this right now. I know this because some of you tell me all about Star Wars. When the next Baby Yoda show comes out, you can tell me all about football and fantasy football and statistics. You can tell me all about the latest trends from Chip and Joanna Gaines and how that shiplap makes your house look great. But you can't tell me what you're reading in your scripture and how it's changed your life. If you find yourself here in this congregation believing that lie this morning, I want you to know that that is an accusation of Satan. The reason I know that's false is because I've met believers who can't read. And I don't mean have a reading problem. I mean, are really can't read. They're illiterate. And they still love Jesus and can quote his word. So I know hiding God's word in your heart isn't a reading problem. Another accusation of Satan is you can't lead your family in devotion. You don't know enough to do this. I want you to know that's garbage. Do you think God calls the equipped or equips the called? The first step to being awesome at something is being terrible at it. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's a quote straight from Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) I know that to be true in my life. I'm up here doing that in front of you right now. Let me tell you the truth that Satan's attack and Satan's attempts to dehorn God's power in your life comes from accusing you that you will be ineffective. I'll tell you this too. No matter where you are in your walk, there is somebody who is looking up to you. You are one step ahead of where somebody is going to be. And every single believer, even at any maturity level here today, you young boys sitting over here on my right, someone's looking up to you. And somebody is going to follow in your footsteps. Make sure they see you fighting back against Satan. Make sure they see you setting the example. It's time to fight back time to fight back. One of my favorite texts I ever got on my birthday of encouragement was, happy birthday, John. I hope you wake up knowing that Satan is saying, oh crud, this guy is awake again today. Is that the attitude we have? Is that the war set, the warfare mindset that God has given you, or are you asleep? Are you inactive? Are you believing his, inac- his accusations against you? Let me say this, a little personal story here. Um, I come personally, spiritually, from a long line of people who don't walk in the faith today. I am also a fifth-generation Christian. In my family's history, you can see the two narratives of walking away from God and walking toward God almost as clearly as any other picture of those two things being expressed. In my personal story, my father was a minister, and he chose to do something else when I was four and walked away. When I was in high school, in 10th grade, our youth pastor was asked to leave the church for having a sexual relationship with a girl in our high school. 
when I was on my senior trip for our Christian school to Disneyland, Florida, one night down by the bayou. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's a real place. Our chaperone for that trip gathered all 24 of us together and told us the grim news of how our head pastor had passed away. And the motive suspected at the time was suicide. The list doesn't just start, stop with my personal experience. I don't, there are other men who have walked away. Joshua Harris, Rabbi Zacharias are examples of people who have either walked away or did not live the life that God calls them to live. And any time we look up to people who are in positions of authority, we have a tendency to put them in Jesus' place. Don't we? We tend to make them our Messiah. So wrong because men fail you. Mm. Men are going to fail you. But Christ never will. So the reason I can stand up before you today, given the three men I told you about personally in my life, is because I savor what Christ did for me on the cross. And I know He will never fail me. That is the ultimate victory we have over the accusations of Satan that look at this superstar over here who's super gifted and could preach really well. And he fell. How do you think you have a chance? Well, if that's all about you, you don't. But because of Christ, we do. Not, if not for the faithfulness of God, we would already be eaten by this cornered dragon. Amen? Satan wants to kill us. Starts out by deceiving, moves on to accusation, and thirdly, his ultimate goal to neutralize the church is to kill our spiritual faith. My last point here this morning. I can't say what I've said today without taking it all the way and saying, if you're addicted to any secret or non-so-secret sin, closet drinking, watching porn, abusing food, bulimia, anorexia, self-harm, adultery, the list of these sins goes on and on. But if you're involved in any of these things this morning, those of you within my voice, I want you to know your primary means of fighting back and making war with the devil is by repenting. This is how we fight back. If you have one of these sins in your life, you need to confess it. Last week we talked about peace with Jesus ultimately means two things. The first of which is being intimately known, the second which is being eternally loved. And Satan's lie and his accusation here in the first point is that being intimately known means that you're going to lose. Possibly lose your marriage. 
possibly lose friends. If you confess this sin, Satan will accuse you and say, you could lose your job. I've been there. Personally, I've been there. Don't you think that Satan's success hinges on people in positions of authority in the church who are enslaved to sin? Don't you think he loves to see when pastors don't confess spiritual addictions? Don't you think he loves to promote people within the church who have festering wounds of spiritual neglect that they push down and they tolerate? Sure does. This is maybe a reason we're ineffective. Been around the church for 30 years personally, and I've seen way too many church leaders and people in positions of power disqualify themselves by the exposure of habitual sin. My encouragement to you is kill that weed before it grows. Before it becomes a habit, get some help. Sin leads to death. Don't you want to be known, fully known and intimately loved? Then come clean now. Can't assure you that everyone will forgive you of the sin you confess. can't tell you the consequences of sin don't hurt or that you even get to be on the committee of what those consequences are you don't but i can tell you if you want to fight back against satan confess that sin to the person you're sinning against the person you're intimately in relationship with and take a step toward being known In doing this, you are fighting back against Satan's accusations. If you are in one of these sins, see someone who can spiritually counsel you. Don't just tell somebody on Facebook. Don't just go to a friend who likes to listen to you. (laughs) A coworker who's out of the situation and completely removed and has nothing good to say about people anyway. Don't do that. Our pastor, our lay elder, great contact here at this church. If you're in internet land, as Aaron calls it, find a church with sound biblical counseling, whether that's a program or just a pastor, and get involved. If you don't, you're going to stay sidelined. You're going to stay compromised. Confess, repent. Sometimes this process takes a long time of confessing, repenting, and repeating, confessing, repenting, repeating, confessing, repenting, repeating, doing it again and again. Let me tell you, the light at the end of the tunnel is God's glory of being intimately known and eternally loved. Let me wrap it up this morning by leaving you with one final thought. The devil is making war against us and wants to convince us that there is no war to be had or that we can fight the battle tomorrow. Tomorrow is the death of very many victorious campaigns throughout, of very many war campaigns throughout history. And the analogy here that I'm going to use is a cruise ship. I like this analogy because many people think when we do the Christian life, we run it like a cruise ship which runs the danger 
of following the way of Jesus like a cruise ship, showing up to church and hoping for good food and a little entertainment. Others taking care of your every need. Trust me, when I was on a cruise ship, I liked the way they made my bed and did the dishes. We can sit back, relax, exert as little energy as possible, little responsibility, and no accountability. But God didn't intend for us to live the Christian life that way. Instead, we should view our walk, not a cruise ship, but a battleship. The warship has a life or death mission. Every member of the crew has a purpose, and that must be executed to the best of their ability. If the radar operator falls asleep, everyone on that ship could die. Everyone must work together because they depend on one another for the success of the mission and for mutual survival. We need each other, guys. We need each other. This is how we are to view our spiritual survival in light of Satan's attacks. It's why we have one another. Life isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. So all hands on deck. We can't be at peace with Satan. We can't buy his false peace to delay war another day. We got to wake up. I hope you view Revelation 12 as this alarm going off. He wants to deceive us in believing lies about God. He wants to accuse us that our attempts to please God won't be enough. And ultimately, he wants to separate us from God forever. Let's pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, acknowledging the truth that what you have done cannot be undone. You preserve us. If not for your love, we would be already bitten and chewed up by Satan. We nearly are. I hope that you make the war a reality in our minds. I pray that you give us a wartime mindset. I pray that we don't buy cheap excuses like we can participate in the war tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up as people who want to fight back. And that we might be able to fight back because we have peace with Christ the one who was and is and is to come, the one who died, was buried, and resurrected, and stands on the right hand of God in power and enthroned as the center of our worship. So, Lord, this morning I pray that you will have been magnified in the opening of your word, that we might see who you are and your plans for us here a little more clearly. We love you so much. In your son's name we pray. As we come to a close today, would you stand with us? Sing one last song. Makes a little more real, a little more meaningful what Christ has done for us. Thinking about what's at stake. Let's 
Let's sing through these lyrics. Thank you. And I hear 